This is podcast 15 in my series of podcasts where we are exploring the mind of Paul in his letter to the Galatians. Paul has completed his legal midrash, which uncovers from Scripture how God has added the Gentiles to his covenant relationship, and also that he has bestowed his promise of the Spirit on all those with faith in Christ. Now Paul returns to Hebraic artistry of language, appealing to all believers in Galatia, with heightened emotion and continuing breathtaking disclosures. The Galatian believers, both Jew and Gentile, are astounded to hear that they are all sons of God. But this means that Paul must now convince them of their new life in the Spirit, and we will also learn about our own life in the Spirit. Following the powerful impact of Paul's two extraordinary conclusions from Scripture, we are suddenly redirected away from the legal midrash. Paul begins with an endearing term that invites all Galatian believers into his inner circle. Brethren, he begins in Galatians 3.15. He has opened his letter to the Galatians with a salutation using the same term that identifies his close associates. For in Galatians 1.17, Paul opens with Paul and all the brethren who are with me. The Galatians must have been astounded to hear that they were also brethren with Paul. In this way, the tone of the letter shifts suddenly from incisive legal proof to intimate artistic persuasion. There is more than a dramatic softening of tone. There is also a notable shift in those whom Paul is addressing. At the beginning of the earlier artistic persuasion that preceded his legal midrash, Paul was speaking to we who are Jews by nature. These Jewish Christians were preaching what Paul calls a false gospel, which insisted that Gentile believers be circumcised and knowledgeable in the law in order to belong to God's covenant community. But now the term brethren includes not only the Jewish believers, but also the silent Gentile observers as well. Having begun his new thrust of artistic persuasion with brethren, Paul now changes his address to an inviting and encompassing you, plural, reinforcing brethren by neither Jew nor Gentile. In Galatians 3.26-29 we read, You are all sons of God. All of you were baptized into Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. You are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Paul joins personally in this artistry of persuasion with I. I speak according to the manner of mankind. For this is what I am saying. The Jewish Christians are still present as an identifiable group through we and our. We were held in custody under the law. The law became our tutor. The Galatian drama now includes a full cast of active participants. 
Paul has not abandoned the Jewish believers who are still present, but he has changed his tone from criticism to endearment, and he is welcoming the Gentile believers to the discussion who will no longer be silent observers. Since the Gentiles did not have an intimate knowledge of the law, which is the Hebrew sacred writings and commentary on the oral law, they were undoubtedly puzzled and somewhat overwhelmed by the logic and various methods of legal midrash in Paul's preceding proof from Scripture, although they certainly would have heard the two deafening conclusions. Those of us today who find logical methods of legal midrash equally challenging can identify with the Gentile believers in Galatia. First, God has fulfilled his promise to bless the Gentiles who have faith in his Son through the principle of substitution. Christ, the righteous one, has paid the penalty of death so those with faith in him will receive the benefit of his substitution death, which is life. And second, by living a life of faith in Christ, a person activates the gift of the Holy Spirit to walk in the ways of God. Now Paul is turning again to persuasive methods of artistic language, which he will address to all believers in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. Paul's need for artistic persuasion is urgent and critical. He knows it is not sufficient for the Galatians to comprehend the simple meaning of his two legal conclusions from Scripture that we saw in Galatians 3.14, and I will cite those again for you here. First, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, and second, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. There is more to the gospel than comprehension and understanding. Paul must now penetrate the hearts of believers in Galatia in order to bring them to the point of being led by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit and living by the Spirit that are all terms that Paul is going to use in his letter as we continue these podcasts. Paul is perfectly poised as he returns to the linguistic artistry that he had used earlier, only this time his tone is not harsh and accusing, but endearing and logical. A key to Paul's artistic language in Galatians 3.15-4.20 is the concept of future inheritance, because Paul is going to draw on the inheritance as an incentive to promote godly action. Unfortunately, Christians today tend to have only a vague understanding of the hope other than a sense of some future life with God and the eagerly anticipated return of Yeshua the Messiah. In fact, the common Christian phrase today is eternal life, whereas we hear Paul talking to the Galatians about their inheritance. The lack of Christian understanding is unfortunate. Not that eternal life is anything less than extraordinary, but the certainty of eternal life sometimes eludes Christian believers, especially when they perceive it as a reward for action or actions, rather than a gift from God. I think even more important, what Christians sometimes fail to see is that there is much more to God's promises than just eternal life with God. 
So we must listen carefully to Paul's words about the inheritance. We will begin by considering Paul's opening words about the nature of the inheritance, a topic that he will continue to address throughout the remainder of the letter. Paul introduces inheritance with the word seed, meaning descendants. Turning to the Hebrew scriptures, we see that God does not promise an inheritance directly to the children of Israel, but to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through them to their seed. In words that God spoke to Moses, we catch this repeated promise to the fathers, which then passes from the fathers to the descendants, that is, to the children of Israel. This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants, that is, your seed. The word most often translated into English as descendants is the Hebrew zerah, which is literally seed. Paul is going to play with the word seed through artistic manipulation. He will use another word that has a similar meaning, which is sons as in Bnei Yisrael, sons of Israel. These sons of Israel are seed or descendants of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Both seed and sons are descendants, who apparently are entitled to an inheritance. But we will see that Paul has distinguished between seed, which is seed of the fathers, and sons, which are sons of God. This is a paradox, because Scripture declares that the inheritance belongs to the seed of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel. That is, to a multitude of descendants who are the sons or children of Israel. So distinguishing between the seed and sons seems to be a paradox. Paul now launches what appears to be a startling intrusion about seed by seeming to contradict Scripture. Let me read now Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as upon many, but as upon one, and to your seed, who is Christ. That's Galatians 3.16. This paradox is caused by Paul's artistic manipulation of the word seed, which is always grammatically singular in Hebrew, but the plural of this singular noun conveys a multitude of descendants. In English, the same dichotomy of singular grammar with plural meaning occurs with sheep. There is no such word as sheeps, just as Hebrew has no zerot, meaning seeds plural. There can be one sheep or many sheep. In Hebrew, there can be one seed or much seed. The seed or descendants of the fathers will be so abundant that they will be like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. The seed of the fathers are physical descendants, a multitude which Scripture describes as the sons or children of Israel. And the word used for this multitude is zerah, seed, singular, with a plural meaning. If one tries to interpret literally Paul's startling substitution of the singular seed of Christ for the plural seed of the descendants of the fathers, who are the Jews, then one may logically conclude that Paul has intentionally changed the Hebrew scriptures. 
Unfortunately, a common interpretation claims that the singular seed of Christ has replaced the plural seed, the children or descendants of Israel. Instead, such a contradiction of Scripture would have been totally startling to the first century view of the Holy Writings. Some have suggested that Paul may have replaced the Old Testament with a new and better gospel of Christ. It's just simply not a viable suggestion in the context of the passage because we see that Paul not only seems to contradict the Hebrew scriptures, but he also reverses and nullifies his own previous argument when he says, those who are of faith are sons, which is plural, seed or descendants, of Abraham. How can Paul suddenly assert that Christ is the one seed And at the same time, there is a multitude of seed or descendants from Abraham. The literal meaning of the word simply makes no sense. So what is Paul trying to tell us? We suspect that Paul's startling insertion, which changes plural seed to the singular Christ, is some kind of artistic language. In fact, Hebraic exegesis often plays with words, which is what Paul is doing by substituting a singular sense of seed for the clearly understood plural descendants. So now we suspect that Paul is using artistic language. But how do we make sense of his meaning? We remember that Hebraic artistry of language employs patterns of thought. So we return to the passage to look for patterns. We note the rhythmic repetition of several words that surround the strange verse about seed. Besides seed, which is obviously important because of its central location and strange repetition, there are also three other repetitive words. Covenant is repeated two times, promise is repeated four times, and law is repeated two times. Repetition is a clue. It alerts us that there's something here that Paul wants us to to understand. So let us first examine how the repetition of covenant, promise, and law form a pattern. If you reread Galatians 3, 15 to 18, you will gain a sense of the use of these repetitive words in their context. You will see that the first verse 15 is about covenants that are made by men. On the other side of our central seed verse, we find the covenant that God made with Abraham, which is defined by its connection to law. In fact, the dominant relationship in these verses is the one between the two covenants, one made by men and the other by God, whereas the relationship of covenant to law is a subsidiary, explanatory expansion of God's covenant. Thus, we have a simple chiastic structure that places Paul's startling assertion about seed at the center sandwiching seed between the two types of covenants, one made by men and the other that God made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. A concluding passage follows in an A-B-A chiastic construction. All right, I'm going to read the first A line. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Then we get the central B line. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, 
He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Now we go to the second A line that is also about covenant. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. And then comes um, the last verse, which is a conclusion. For if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from a promise, but God has granted the inheritance to Abraham by means of a promise. This entire construction is artistic so we must refrain from reading it literally. First, we note the emphasis of promises by its central location in line B. That is, a covenant is a promise to perform in contrast to law, which is instruction in right behavior. Then we see that the relationship between the two covenants is not contradictory, nor is it the same. Instead, a common Hebraic argument from Scripture concludes with the phrase, How much more? Thus we hear Paul's silent cry in this chiastic pattern. How much more is God's covenant than man's covenant? If man's covenant cannot be set aside or changed, how much more is God's promise confirmed to Abraham and to his seed that is his plural descendants? Paul captures this sense of God's powerful promise to Abraham in his concluding verse that follows the chiasm. For if the inheritance is from law, it is no longer from promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What then is God's powerful promise to Abraham? We remember that the promise was a key element in Paul's first legal proof from Scripture. All the nations shall be blessed in you, Abraham. Paul then concluded, It is those who are of faith who are sons or seed or children or descendants of Abraham. Thus, the Gentiles will inherit as descendants or seed of Abraham. The children of Israel will also inherit as Abraham's descendants. Are you curious to know about the inheritance? Paul reveals that later in Galatians chapter 4. Paul suddenly and unexpectedly reverses his own conclusion from Scripture by changing the plural seed that are all Abraham's descendants, both Jew and Gentile, to the singular seed that is Christ. This startling reversal is emphasized by its central chiastic position. At this point, we are thoroughly confused. What is a common characteristic of biblical artistry of language and is undoubtedly Paul's intention? Obscure language prompts deep, introspective thought. Paul's goal is apparently to startle us and to catch our attention by changing the plural seed of Abraham to the singular seed of Christ and to stimulate our curiosity about the central chiastic anomaly of the singular seed. But before resolving the tension that Paul's artistic language has stimulated about seed, we will have to follow Paul, who continues his handling of seed by suddenly shifting to sons. Here we are startled once more because Paul does not speak about Abraham or sons of Israel, which one might expect, 
but he has suddenly introduced sons of God. Yet before Paul draws this breathtaking conclusion about sons of God, he will turn first to the law and its failure to accomplish righteousness. There is a reason that Paul seemingly diverts to a discussion of the law. Righteousness is a condition required of sons of God. If not by the law, then how is righteousness achieved? We will address this in the next podcast.